0: to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. i got to tell you something, people. I'm very happy to have this gentleman on my show today. He's, he's a, quite the voice in rock and roll. You know, he's a, he's a music historian, he's a radio producer, a, a radio host, a TV host, an author, and he's a fellow New Jersey guy. Now, I believe he's from North Jersey originally, so he's probably—we don't see eye-to-eye eye on sports, but I think we see eye-to-eye eye that New Jersey is a great state, and my guest is Eddie Trunk. How are you doing, Eddie?
1: Hey Steve, yeah, I would be a uh, Mets and Giants fan, so I don't think we see eye to eye there, but you're, you're basically, we'd consider that basically to be part of Philadelphia where you're from,
0: so. Well, it's funny, I, I tell people that, like when I, when I was in L.A., people would say, where are you from? And when I would say, you know, New Jersey, and I'd be wearing an Eagles shirt watching a game, they'd say, well, what do you mean? And I, so I just told people I was from Philly, but then years later people were like, we thought you were from Philly, and I'm like, guys, look at a damn map.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, it's interesting where I am at the moment is at the Jersey Shore where I have a a house here. And, um, you know, this is right. This is just south enough where you will get that crossover where you'll see some Jets, Giants, and then you'll also see some Phillies, Eagles. So you right in this area is like right kind of in the middle before the line separates. You know, you get a, a mix here a little bit
0: i got to ask you, because we're the same age, and, you know, you're talking about the Jersey Shore. How much did it bother you when that show came out? Because I always grew up going to Avalon or Stone Harbor uh, in college and stuff like that. And then the Jersey Shore came out, and as you said, you said you're in La Valette, and there's places, you know, Spring Lake, Manasquan, all beautiful places. Did it piss you off? Because for me, I'm like, no, nope, everyone's not like that. That's Seaside Heights. <laughs> Leave it alone.
1: Yeah, or as we called it, Side growing up. But, uh... Yeah, I mean, I, I actually, believe it or not, I actually never saw that show. So I, I don't, the Jersey Shore show. So I, I, I mean, I've I seen commercials for it, but I don't really know what goes on. But I do know that, that to this day, like as we speak, that house is walking distance from where I'm sitting right now. And if I go over there, I can guarantee you there will be some people younger than me in front of the door taking photos. So it's definitely still a thing and people still go, but... Yeah, I don't think it's indicative of what you know how beautiful this area is actually.
0: So I want to talk about how you got into the music business, but uh, on, I, I follow you on Twitter. People follow Eddie at, at Eddie Trunk, and you posted a question of bands that never broke huge. And you know, tell me some of your insight because, as I said, we're the same age. And you know, I had read something how your first love was Kiss, and I still remember when I was in like seventh or eighth grade when uh, what was it when Rock and Roll Over came out, and, and there was a the little the sticker in the album and, and you had it on your three ring blind binder and it made you like, cool. You know, it's like, Oh wow, this person likes music, but who are some of the bands that you, you wouldn't talk about that you think didn't break as much as you thought they would.
1: Well, what you're referring to is a topic that I did on my radio show that spilled into social media from people listening, which is great when that happens because only so many people can get through in a two hour live radio show. So it, eventually people starts conversation online and stuff, which is fun to see. I'll tell you, I mean, the vast majority of the bands I like for every kiss and Aerosmith that I grew up loving and still do, there's just as many bands that nobody had ever heard of that never made it. When I worked in the record industry signing bands, I signed a couple of them that never made it. So there's a lot of them. I mean, I loved a band called Icon. I-C-O-N, that were from Arizona, did two records on Capitol. I ended up doing a third record with them on Megaforce when I worked there in the late 80s. There's also a band from New Jersey called Profit, P-R-O-P-H-E-T, more of a progressive, commercial, melodic band, phenomenal band. T.T. Quick, another Jersey band, phenomenal group. Their guitar player instructed people like Zach Wilde and the guys in Skid Row And were big influences on them. And unfortunately, he never made it. But TT Quick and their their guitarist Dave DiPietro, just brilliant. So there's just so many. And I I grew up loving the British rock band UFO, who are hardly a household name. But still a lot of people do know who they are. But uh, countless, countless, countless bands that you could fall into that category. So there's just a few that come to the top of my
0: mind. I saw UFO at the Spectrum. I think they played with horse lips. I'm not sure it was, it was a weird it was a weird bill. Have you ever heard of a band called a uh, Heaven's Edge?
1: Sure, and I know Dave Rath, who's in that band, who these days actually has a very uh, is a very successful music industry A and R guy for Roadrunner Records, and Rath does that now for a living and is you know, works with some of the biggest bands in rock and metal. Uh, But yeah, I do know them because I know Rath was in it, but I know they were more of a Philly, Maryland thing than getting to my area of New Jersey. So I don't know their music all that well, but I do know they'll play once or twice a year on some events that I'm on.
0: Yeah, Reggie Wu went to my high school. That's why he was dated a girl in my neighborhood who he's now married to. So, so, okay, what, what made you get into music? When, I mean, you've had such a long career in music. And, you know, a lot of times we listen, all of us listen to music when we're younger. But what caught your ear? I mean, we, we, were you a very little kid and you said, I just love this? Or what happened? How did you start this long and lengthy successful career?
1: There, there was a very couple of very key moments. One was, one was uh, hearing a band called The Raspberries and a song called Go All The Way. That I always point to as the moment where I discovered and, and heard proper rock music for the first time, and it was very, very impactful, and it was backseat in my parents' car, and I probably would have been around 10 years old, and up to that point, I'd listened to like Partridge Family Records and stuff like that, but I heard this song called Go All the Way by the Raspberries come on. And it was just game-changing to me. It was these crunchy, distorted guitars with this melodic chorus, and it just pulled me right in. I mean, I'll never forget it. And I made my parents take me to the record store and buy me Raspberry's records. And I became this fan of this band that really only had a couple hit singles, but I just became consumed with them and was into them really young. I mean, 10, 11 years old and then uh, walking home from junior high school a friend of mine we walked by a record store every day a friend of mine said hey i'm going to go in this record store and buy this new record by this band called kiss and at that time rock and Roll Over" was their new record so it would have been 76 and i would have been 12. and i said i never heard of this band he said we should get their previous record and that was destroyer and i did that was another game changing life-changing moment to Dropped the needle on Detroit Rock City, stare at the album cover and just became consumed with kiss for the next couple of years. I wouldn't even let any other bands in and kiss because I, as a kid, I viewed any other band as a threat to kiss. So that was my mentality then. And I just became consumed with them. And then eventually got into other music. I, I, I very much wanted to work at a record store. I did while I was in high school and right out of high school, I wanted I went on this mission to basically do anything I could to share the music I liked with other people and spread the word about it. So to that end, I started writing the music high school paper music review column. I started working at a college radio station while I was still in high school. Then that transitioned into working for a record store and then that in that record store would come The owners of my local rock station, WDHA, and I would always pester them to let me on the air to do a metal show, which really didn't even exist at the time. Eventually, they did in 83, so I got into radio. That led to me working for a record company. So it was all things that became interconnected, and it was all about what can I do to share this music I love with other people. So I was writing about it. I was selling it. I was signing it. I worked for a management company. I was doing, I was playing it on the radio. So it became this all consuming thing. The only thing I didn't do was actually play it myself.
0: Now, what is it that drew you to KISS? You know, we all think about music we listen to, and you'll, you know, I know you said you're an Aerosmith band, and I still remember live bootleg and come together. No, dream on when he says motherfucker. And we were all like, oh my God, he cursed on an album. And it was just something. But, and it, that's what drew. I mean, for me, I loved Aerosmith and it was, you know, um, uh, sweet emotion the opening bass which just got me. But what was it that drew you to Kiss? I mean, it, it seems like it changed your life. And I know so many musicians who are in, you know, metal or hard rock that Kiss just really changed their lives. What was it? Was it just the sound or just the whole persona? I mean, what, Drew you, I mean, to, to seem like it really, really affected you.
1: Yeah, and you're right. I'm in a large group of people that would say that. I mean, there's tons of people, musicians and, and what have you, that would absolutely say that. And there's massive influence. For me, it was very much the music. It really was. It's funny, when people talk about Kiss, a lot is made of the stage show to make up the costumes. And I'm not going to lie. Of course, that was all extremely cool to me as well. But it was really the music. And at that point, my first exposure to their music was Destroyer, which to this day is regarded as one of, if not their, all-time classic studio record. So, you know, I got in right at a time where they were firing on all cylinders and the record was fantastic that they had made at the time. But, you know, it was everything. I mean, until then, it was... Look, the Raspberries, who were the only band I loved before KISS, amazing songs, but on the cover of one of their records, they're wearing leisure suits. No joke. (laughs) So here I am hearing this music, which ironically, the Raspberries influenced KISS. But here here was KISS, which was the Raspberries, turned up to 11, but also with all the other elements of the insane stage show and the characters and who these people were and all this stuff. And I think one of the things lost on people now that, that don't, they don't understand about KISS was the anonymity of it was a huge thing at the time. In the last 40 years, I mean, everybody knows who they really are and has seen them in and out of makeup a million times. It's not a big deal. But as a kid growing up in the 70s, that was a huge part of it. Like, who are these guys really? Are they guys from other bands? Are they, uh, they really, you know, Gene Simmons really have a cow tongue grafted onto his tongue like you know all this urban legend stuff really played into it and really fed into a kid's imagination at the time so that was a big part of the kiss thing that often gets overlooked because it's been it's been over 40 years since they were anonymous but but uh that was a big part of it too but i always go back to the records and the songs to this day that's what I love the most about those early Kiss
0: records. You know, it is mystical, you're right. It was mystical, like, who they were. And, and you always had, like, some kid in the schoolyard who would say, oh, I heard it's this guy. You'd be like, ah, shut up, it's not that guy. But you're right, and that's, I think, what made the allure. And, and it was a big thing if you saw them, you know, like, oh, Kiss might be taking their you know, make-off. Now, you mentioned albums. You know, how important were albums to you? Because I, I look back at albums, I remember I bought... On through the night, Def Leppard's first album. After I saw them at the Spectrum with the Scorpions and Ted Nugent, and I remember it back then when you 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 bought an album. You know, you had your job, you saved your money, you drove up, you hoped it had the lyrics inside. But you could just look at it, and as you said when you looked at Destroyer, and you know, you just looked at it. How important was it to you just to, like examine the record, and were you excited Ugh. when you would sit there? Was it like, oh my god, I hope this doesn't suck? I only know two songs. I mean. And when you get done answering that, tell me if any album you bought when you were younger just disappointed the hell out of you.
1: Well, to this day, I am a stickler for wanting my music physically, and my preferred format is still CD. If there's something I'm really into, I've got to have the CD. I'm not, this surprises a lot of people, but I am not on the vinyl kick at all. But I I am still... 100 percent a cd guy so if it's something i love and i want i've got to have it physically and i gotta have the liner notes and the booklet and file it with my other cds maybe that's just being older but that's just really important to me but even as an interviewer to this day publicists and stuff will hit me up about artists coming on my show and i'll be like can you send me a cd and they'll be like um well, we can send you a PDF, we'll send you this, we'll send you that. I'm like, no, can you send a CD? It'll cost you two bucks, I know, but can you send the CD? Because so many times I will discover things from holding it, looking at it, the artwork, the packaging, that will inform me and be really important to me and sometimes be something I'll use in the interview. But, you know, where I am right now, at the Jersey Shore at the moment, on the Seaside Heights boardwalk, I grew up on that boardwalk and back when I was growing up, there would be these booths where they're still there, where you could put a quarter. Now it's probably a dollar, but then a quarter. And if the number comes up, you could win a record. And you could only select your record based off of what the album cover looked like because you couldn't listen to the record. So that artwork was so important. And then I would just get, and to this day I do this, I'd go through liner notes, I'd read who wrote the songs, I'd read who produced the record, who engineered the record, who mixed the record, who took the photos, who who was thanked, who wasn't thanked. I mean, this sounds ridiculous, but one of the reasons why I got into Van Halen on their first record was because being a big Kiss fan, I was told that Gene Simmons was involved in them And if you look at the thank yous on the first on the first Van Halen record, Gene is the first one thanked. So I'm like, oh, Gene's involved. They like Gene. I must like this. And I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but that's what got me into it. So all of the packaging to this day is is vitally important. And yeah, there were times where you got records that looked cool and they weren't. You know, the music didn't back it up. One that comes to mind when I was younger there was a department store chain in New Jersey called two guys. And uh, I'm sure you had them in South Jersey too. And it was a department store, but there was a record store section in there. And when I would go to that department store with my parents, I went right to the record store, uh, the record section. And there was the cutout bin, which was the 99 cent records that weren't selling, which would have the corner stipped and you could, Experiment and get a new record for like a buck. And even if it sucked, you're only out of a buck. So I bought a lot of records out of the cutout bin because if my mom gave me five bucks, I could buy five records instead of one and try different things. And uh, the only way I could judge these records was off of what the cover looked like because I couldn't listen to them in advance. And I remember I bought a record by a band called Rabbit, spelled with a W. It's like W-R-A-B-B-I-T Or something And I It was like a live Live photo of the band And it kind of reminded me of Kiss Alive The album cover And it felt like Wow, this is going to be this blazing rock band And when I got it I just remember it wasn't For whatever reason 45 years later That one sticks out at me As the one that like <laughs> Looked the part But didn't sound the part
0: That's funny Now Now as you're growing up and you're listening to, you know, hard rock, and now you said it wasn't known as metal then, were you attracted to any of the new wave or any of that kind of uh, music, like the Police or anyone like that, or were you just like this is this isn't my this isn't my lane? I'm staying out of it.
1: As my career progressed and I got into rock radio, where I had to play so many things and a lot of things I didn't have anything to do with what I did or didn't play my my horizons broadened a lot in terms of what i have an appreciation for but to this day i am still at my core i would i would not call at all what i am today a metal guy although i love a lot of classic metal but metal over the decades have got, has gotten way more extreme and heavier and aggressive and a lot of the vocal that i liked is now gone and substituted for like more of a screaming vocal And that's not my thing. So I'd probably more accurately describe what I like now as hard rock than metal, even though I like a lot of metal. But to answer your question, I mean, you know, I grew up in the era of MTV and all of that stuff and could all of course see that music and hear that music and, and working in a record store, it forced you to be aware of that music and share it with others and sell it. But, um, some of that, stuff, like the police, I can certainly appreciate, but I'd be lying to you if I told you I ever sat down and cracked up a police record start to finish. It just wasn't my thing. I was always into harder edged music and also vocals. I always had to hear vocals that I liked. So to this day, that's my thing. Um, definitely more of the harder, harder edge of rock, but certainly more of an appreciation of the other stuff.
0: Now, when did you start going to concerts? And is there any concerts that stick out to you? Because, you know, as you said, we're the same age. And, and I remember I, the, the Ticketmaster was at Woolworth in the Cherry Hill Mall. So you had to go there. And, you know, it's not like now. You can just go online and wait forever. But what, what were some of your early concert experiences that you really enjoyed? And was there any shows that you didn't get tickets to as a younger person and you were just pissed off? Well...
1: You know, going back to the Raspberries, obviously I was super young. And my parents weren't still to this day supportive of my passion and love for rock music. And they themselves were were fans of 50s music growing up. And the Raspberries broke up in like 75, I believe. So I would have been 11 And they played at a club very close to where I still live. It's no longer there called the joint in the woods. And I remember hearing the radio ad for it and just being lit up. And that would have been my first concert. The problem was not only was I only 11, but it was a bar and they, it was, you know, you had to be of legal drinking age to get in. But I remember my mom, making a call to the club and saying, you know, Hey, can we, we have an, our son is 11 and he's a fan of the band. If we come and stand in the back, is that okay? Will he be allowed in if we bring him? And they said, no, they said, you've got to be at that point. I think it was 18 and up. So the one that got away that I wished I could have said I saw was that one, which I just couldn't get into because of my age being so young. The first concert that I did end up going to was a couple of years later, and that was Kiss, Madison Square Garden, December 16th, 1977. It was the Alive 2 tour, and what a time to get into Kiss because anybody that's a Kiss fan knows that's pretty much considered the definitive period. So that was my first concert. My second concert was Kiss two years later in 79. And then from there, by the, around the time 1980 rolled around, I'm 15, 16 years old and now I've got friends that are driving and I could at least be mobile and go to some shows on my own. And I started to do that and I remember there was a, uh, a natural outdoor amphitheater in a town a few towns over from where I grew up in West Orange, New Jersey. They started putting on shows there. And I remember going to see Pat Benatar and Billy Squire there very early on. I saw Iron Maiden open for Judas Priest at Convention Hall in Asbury Park, New Jersey. I remember this stuff because I have the ticket stubs for it. I saw Metallica open for Vandenberg at a club in Staten Island. Uh, I saw Kirk Hammett play his first ever show with Metallica at a place in Dover, New Jersey, called The Showplace. So those are all real early memories of early shows that I went to. And I started going to a legendary club in Brooklyn a lot called Lemores, who had, they had tons of shows there every weekend. And I started, as soon as I could drive, I started going there a lot, which didn't make my mom happy because it was going over two bridges, bad area of Brooklyn, and they didn't put headliners on until like one in the morning. So you didn't get home before like 4 or 4.30 in the morning. My parents couldn't understand how that could be happening. And they definitely thought I was up to something else when I told them I was just
0: watching a band. But that's all I really was doing. (laughs) I got to ask you, I I read, I I, I listened. I was on vacation and I started going to the gym. So I listened to uh, Nothing But A Good Time, the book. And uh, about, you know, the 80s metal scene. Tell me what your take on it is because you were involved in it and you know you you helped build that scene. But what, what were the eighties like for you when all that music started breaking?
1: Well, at that time, and I read that book too, and I thought it was fantastic. I really enjoyed it. I, I, at that time, you know, it's interesting for me with the eighties bands because I'm certainly a huge fan. And I'm certainly probably most aligned with them in my career. But those bands and most of those guys are more friends and contemporaries. Like, I grew up with them. We literally grew up together in the business. So although I have, I'm a fan of them and I have massive respect for them, I view them differently personally because they're just, to me, they were guys I kind of grew up with, you know, in, in a way, some of them personally and others like just in a way that we grew up together in the business. Like first Metallic album came out. That was the year I started in radio. I got a picture of me and Rudy Sarzo when I was 18. That was one of my first interviews, like quiet riot, mental health came out. So all of that, that scene, uh, Motley Maiden. um, you know everything that, like that came after it, from White Lion to Warrant to whoever, Anthrax. All of it. Those were all guys that, like, I was new in radio, and they were new to music, and we we, we were all around the same age. So I look at that really differently than the stuff from the seventies, because that's the stuff that I probably get the most internally geeky about. Because that's, those were the guys I had the posters on my wall. Van Halen and Aerosmith and Kiss and Sabbath and UFO and all that stuff, ACDC. That's all the stuff that was like larger than life to me because I was a little kid. The, the stuff in the 80s, I'm, I'm in lockstep with it in terms of the career because I was doing my thing parallel to them building as bands. And in almost every instance, I had experience working with them, interviewing them, getting to know them. And many of them to this day are still great friends. So it's just a little bit of a different connection I have to it because I was it's different versus being in the business at that time versus being a little kid and looking at posters on your wall.
0: Now, you also you mentioned about uh, working and signing bands and you work for Megaforce. How did that come about? And then you were you were a young guy. I mean, it was that just a weird to sit there all of a sudden and go, wait a second, you know, I'm, I'm working for a, a record company. It's not like, you know, you're working for, like, when I got out of college, I sold fax machines. It's like a fax machines, you know, oh, big shit. But you, what was that like? And, and, and also, when you're with that, what made you decide to revive Freely's career? Well...
1: Again, the theme here is I did, everything with my obsession with music started extraordinarily young, from the Raspberries at 10 to Kiss at 12 to working in a record store at 16 to being on the radio at 16 forward to all these different things. I just started really, really young because that was my only thing. I was not good in school. I did not go to college. I didn't have a passion for anything but rock music and that's all I really chased fortunately I made it work out but it was extraordinarily narrow vision because that's all I had an interest in and um, I, I when I started a radio show in 83 it there really wasn't anything like a quote unquote metal show on the air There were maybe one or two others in other parts of the country, but it was incredibly unique to be doing a metal show, a a radio show spotlighting just that genre of music. So even, it made a lot of impact at that time that I was doing such a thing. And one of the guys that I used to go buy records from all the time was a guy named Johnny Z. And he had a a, uh, flea market record store called Rock and Roll Heaven, and I became a regular customer as soon as I got my license, and I would drive there on weekends and buy import records and Kerrang! magazine and all this stuff. And uh, got to know Johnny, and then I got the radio show on the air in 83, and I started playing some of the records I bought from his flea market on the air. And Johnny quickly realized that when I played them, even more people came in and bought them. So he started giving me the records when I showed up because it was, you know, it was primitive promotion. It was like, here, you know, take this record by Raven, give it a spin because he knew people started listening to me and the next day he'd sell more copies. So that went on for a little bit. And then Johnny came to physically came to my studio one night, knocked on the door and told me he had a band that he was basically risking everything on and he needed to get it played on the radio and asked me if I would play it. And I told him that, leave the record, I'll let you know, let me check it out. He goes, no, I won't leave till you play it. You've got to play it now. I was live on the air. And I was like, okay, what is it that's so important? And it was Metallica's first record. And he said, please play this, just play it while I'm here so I can tell the band that God played it. And I did. And uh, I didn't know what I heard. I didn't, I'd never heard any music like that, that extreme. And I couldn't tell you, that. I'd love to tell you, oh, I heard the future and I knew they were going to be huge. That would be a lie because I didn't know what I was hearing. But he was so grateful that he wrote on the cover of the record, Ed, you were the first, thank you, John Z. I still have it. And he left. And he said to me that uh, if I can ever get this band off the ground. I'm going to hire you to work for my record company because you took a chance. Uh, yeah, 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 right, sure. Yeah. And he leaves. And we stayed in touch, and needless to say, 86 rolls around, Metallica's now huge, and Metallica leaves him for Electra. And he basically called me up, and he said, look, I now have money in this settlement to start a proper record company. I'll make good on my word, and I want to hire you. So at 22 or whatever I was at that time, I started working for him. And it was not this amazing, luxurious record company, cushy cushy executive life you would imagine. We were working out of his house in Old Bridge, New Jersey. My office was a, a, a spot on the floor next to his daughter's crib with a phone extension leading into it. And I'm not kidding you. So it was, you know, early, early days, but here I was working for a record company, and then for the next three or four years we built it from there and he hired more people, his wife was already with him there was a woman named Metal Marie already with him, and then I came in and then we built it from there, and started signing more bands, and we were managing he was managing Anthrax, and we we, uh, got a distribution deal with Atlantic, and at that time and answering the final part of your question where ace comes in was i don't, at that time megaforce was really about metallica, manowar, anthrax, uh, testaments, heavy music. and although i liked that stuff, i felt like we could also get some hard rock that could maybe get played on the radio. johnny was never a kiss fan. i was. I knew Ace was out there. I knew that Ace would be instantly cause interest, immediate interest from a fan base to find out what he sounded like and looked like in 86. And then through Eddie Kramer, the producer, we got in touch with Ace, he had done a demo with him. And the next thing you know, I'm sitting down at a table having lunch with Ace and Johnny and Eddie and making sure that Ace was together because at that point, you know, drugs were an issue. And uh, next thing you know, we're in a lawyer's office and my first signing is a guy that I grew up, you know, a member of my favorite band. And I'm happy to say to this day, Ace and I are still great friends. We're in
0: touch at least once a week. What was that like meeting him? I mean, it's like anything, you know, you you love Kiss that changed your life. And that's, you know, built a path. I mean, it would not be as big as meeting some of the Raspberries. But what was it like when you sat there, you know, and finally met him?
1: Well, I learned really early on, Steve, that – and I, I adhere to this to this day – that even if you are a mega fan and inside you're geeking out tremendously, you, to be professional, you kind of keep that at bay. Because you, you know that if you want to have a, the, the opportunity to have a real relationship with these artists and cut through all that, you can't come off as a, a super fan And fall all over them A lot of them don't like it And they immediately just put you in this category Of someone that they can't trust Or they wouldn't confide in So very early on I learned that And as much as I'm like Holy shit, I'm sitting here At lunch with Ace Frehley I I kept it professional And I probably didn't say a whole lot In that original meeting Because I remember Johnny was there It was his company He had me with him because I was his his KISS guy, and, and and I knew the history. Eddie Kramer was there, and maybe one or two other people I don't remember. So I kind of just kept kept to myself a little bit in that initial meeting, and then really became uh, somebody that for Johnny to bounce things off of when we were outside of the meeting to say what do you think, and I would give him my thoughts. So I, I kept it, you know, pretty, pretty close to the vest, and uh, it wasn't until we got into making the first record and he was signed that you know, there is a very classic signing photo of me and Johnny and his wife Marsha with a lawyer and Ace in a lawyer's office from when we signed him. But uh, it wasn't until really he got into making the record that I started to get closer to him and started to put my two cents in and show up at the studio and have a voice in what that was that career was going to be.
0: Now, you know, you, you ended up being a, a radio host DJ in New York, and then, you know, I know you ended up on Sirius. How great was Sirius for you? Because it was a, a format where were you... Did you have any constrictions, restrictions, when you were playing, you know, your metal show on a regular station? Did they have any restrictions of what you could play or not? Well,
1: one of the things that I set a precedent for right from the start of my career with radio was to do my own show and to let me call all my shots. And that's incredibly rare and incredibly difficult to do. But I started in radio, not because I wanted to be on the radio, because I wanted to do a metal show. I wanted to share music. I wasn't hearing on the radio with other people. That was the reason it wasn't to try to become famous or rich or anything. It was just, I want to be able to have platforms to expose music. So The idea of being on the radio and not controlling what I played made no sense to me, but that's how 99% of radio is still to this day. But I pushed against it right out of the gate and I said, look, you guys are bringing me here. Give me, I don't care what hours you put me on. Just let me be, leave me alone. Let me do my thing. And that's, you know, that's why my initial radio was like Friday nights at 11 o'clock at night. because. And I still have a show that airs at that time. Actually, it's recorded now, but I do. But that's because, you know, okay, well, you want to go play this stuff that nobody really knows or that's not mainstream. That's where you're going to do it. We're not going to put you on in the middle of the day. So for decades, I worked off weird hours, but I would trade all, I would do it any day to have the creative freedom to play what I wanted to play. And there's been times in my career where I've done, as they call it, format, and I could do it tomorrow, where, you know, you're playing the format, playing what you hear all the time, and talking for 30 seconds, and that's it. That was never of interest to me creatively. So, uh, that was really important to me, and still is, and I'm happy and proud to say that on all the programs I do now, which is a total of eight a week, six live, I have total autonomy, Uh, and I fought for it, and I earned it and you know it's something that's really important and then where satellite radio came into the picture in in 2000 when sirius and xm were two different companies and two competing companies and both were interested in me doing the show for them xm was willing to let me do what i wanted let me do it live let me play what i want let me do the type of show i wanted serious at the time was not they wanted me to adhere to a format everything had to be pre-recorded and it just was pointless to me so i went with xm and uh you know did fine with them for for a bit and just did a show a week but it was live there were a lot of guests it was a lot of fun and then when the companies merged then i was folded into the whole operation and uh you know, still kept my autonomy, but I had a lot of frustration because, you know, at that point, I'm doing that metal show and I've got a t- couple decades in and I've got all these connections with these artists. And honestly, for the longest time, I had major frustration because they wouldn't let me do more. They wouldn't put me on more than three hours a week. They really were not paying me at all. I mean, the way I was working, the conditions I was working, it was just extraordinarily frustrating. And I couldn't advance there. And it was really, really frustrating. And uh, that frustration, if I'm being totally honest with you, continued up until five years ago. I stayed because I loved doing the show, and I had a great national audience that loved what I was doing. But there were many times where I was going to bail. And uh, I hung in there, hung in there, and then about five years ago, I was approached by a guy that I used to work with at VH one and MTV named Roger Coletti. And he said to me, I'm going to launch an all talk music channel. And I want you as one of my full-time hosts. And I was pretty dismissive about it at first because I had been told so many things by that company. Like I was going to get a real gig one of these days and it never happened. But Roger insisted he was going to make it happen. And I always give him credit because he did. And he fought for me he fought with the higher ups he said i can't launch this channel without eddie as one of the anchors and um that relationship and that show continues to this day and it's maybe the my favorite radio show that i've done in my career doing a daily rock talk show about rock music so it's been wonderful and now i am happy with how I'm treated and who I'm working for and what I'm doing there. So uh, I'm really glad I hung in there and it's all credit to Roger because he was the guy that, that fought for me to, to, to do something there. And the last thing I'll say about it is when I started the show on serious, well on XM and then Sirius XM, what I was doing was considered crazy because I was on a music channel, first the boneyard and then hair nation. And I was doing a live show and doing extended interviews and taking phone calls from listeners and doing a hybrid of talk and music. No one was doing anything like that on a music channel. Initially, there was a lot of blowback about it. Initially, people were outraged, like shut up and play more music. But I felt there was a need to do something more. And that was really pretty, worked out pretty good because when Roger and the Sirius XM decided to launch a music talk channel. Here I was already doing it one day a week on one of the music channels. So I don't know if that planted the seed, but it did show that there was a need and an outlet and an interest in it, and that's how it all came together.
0: Now the metal show you mentioned is funny. I've known I've known Jim. I know Jim from back when we did stand up comedy together and he was jamming Jim. I'm jamming Jim and he had the to- blonde hair and wear the tight white jeans for me him back this was like 1990 me him and bobby levy would work together a lot and uh and you know i never knew back then he was so into the, the metal because i think it was different time you know when you're doing comics we, we'd all chase girls after the show that's what we do we perform and do that Worse. but now how did the metal show come about and did you think that it would just catch on because people love that show people still talk about that show
1: Yeah, it's amazing. I'm still asked about it almost every day. It's been off the air like six years now, but it's incredible, the mark that it made, and I'm really proud of that, because I fought extraordinarily hard to get it on the air and to keep it on the air. The, The quick story on that is that I was a host on VH1 Classic for five years before that show, and I was doing every genre of music, and basically I was a VJ interview guy, and kind of referencing what i said before about radio where i had autonomy to play and say what i wanted i did not have that my first five years on vh1 classic i was you know here's what you're going to wear here's what you're going to ask here's what you're not going to ask here's the script to introduce the video it's very regimented but look you're going to get a tv gig you got to play the game and i did and i enjoyed it and i enjoyed the people i work with and i have great memories and i did Amazing interviews back then With major people Like I went to England twice And interviewed Robert Plant And went to England and interviewed Black Sabbath And like unbelievable stuff Back then VH1 Classic Was not seen in that many homes And it wasn't as popular as it became So not a lot of people saw that stuff That I was doing back then But I'm really proud of a lot of the work I did then But it wasn't me They weren't letting me be me and I always asked them, give me my own show. Let me do something on the weekend. Just turn me loose and they wouldn't do it. And then they they, they blew up the whole format of the channel in like 2007. At one day, everybody got fired. And they just decided to put the channel on autopilot and just run old videos. And again, just for clarity, I'm talking about VH1 Classic, not VH1. That was the channel we on. And um, I knew that eventually they were going to need a show to attract people to that channel because you could only run old videos for so long before you have zero audience. And after about a year of them doing that, I maintained my relationships with the people at the network. You know, I was always sending them ideas and let me try this and let's do this. And it was always, uh, we don't know, we don't know. And then around 07, they called me in and I, speaking of comics, I always had a very open-door policy on my radio show for anyone, athletes, comics, who were really into hard rock, to sit in with me. And many did over the years and still do. And one of the guys that was coming around a lot, who I'd become friends with, was Jim Brewer. And Brewer had been doing a radio show himself out of his house, and he would often have me on as a guest. And he was amazed how much I knew about this music. And Brewer had this, at the time, this concept of doing this TV show that he was calling Heavy Metal Man. And it was it was based around like a guy who's like a dad by day, but a metal guy at night. So he was pitching that idea to the network and VH1 was sniffing around that. And I was pitching this idea basically like a metal version of The Tonight Show. And... Uh, Brewer and I put our heads together And did like a hybrid demo Of a show that we would do together And it was very different Than what that metal show ended up being But there was, for instance, Stump the Trunk Came from that, that's where Stump the Trunk Was Brewer's thing from his radio show And uh, He said So BH1 said to me Look, we like We like both of your Ideas and we want you To be together We'd like to do a show with you guys together. So Jim and I are friends. Sure, let's do it. So we hashed out a bunch of ideas, and Jim bought a lot of ideas in. I threw some ideas in, and we got to the point where they were ready to do a show with us. Like they were, we were contract phase. But Brewer decided he didn't want to do it in the eleventh hour, and he bailed on it. And, you know, to this day, I'm not entirely sure why, but I think it had to do with the fact that, you know, when you take one of those deals, these ideas that Jim had for these characters and stuff, they own them. like many you sign that contract, it becomes their property. And I think I think Jim was gun shy about the deal and it thought he could do something else with his ideas and, and didn't want to sign sign things over. And I get that uh, Brewer and I are still friends to this day. So Brewer bailed and I was adamant about still keeping my part of the thing going but the network was not really interested without Brewer and I had a fight to get another meeting and I said let me come into this meeting with two guys who are also comics but also really into this music. Don and Jim had already been hanging out in my radio studio. We'd already known each other. We were already friends. I knew the chemistry was there. And I said, let me introduce you to these guys and let's see if we can get an idea going. So after a lot of pushing, I got the network to take the meeting. The meeting went really well. They liked Don and Jim. They got to know him. They liked the chemistry between us. They liked the ball busting. And we basically rehashed this whole idea to do a a, Essentially, a rock talk show, and that's that's where the show was born.
0: Now, because you're a you know you're rock, you know you're considered a historian. Do you ever get shit from people who don't agree with any of your of your you know what you think about stuff? Because I think you know, especially now with the internet, people you you can say. I always laugh. You know, you can say, "Would you rather have a Dorito or a Frito?" And they would say a Cheeto. And I'm like, "We, we don't go to a restaurant and say. Waiter says, do you want asparagus or green beans? And you don't say Brussels sprouts. You know, it's just people always have to argue. What have you gone through with? Has anyone that pissed you off just because they were disrespectful? Uh, you're talking
1: about, like, listeners, fans, comment type Twitter. stuff? Or Twitter, Stuff
0: like on Twitter. Do people sit there and not want to hear your take sometimes? Or how, how, how's your relationship? Because you do tweet a lot. Yeah, I
1: mean, um... Uh, when it comes to social media, Twitter was the thing that I really embraced first and still probably do the most and still like the most. Uh, I've also ramped up a lot of Instagram lately, but I like Twitter because Twitter, you don't need to always have a photo with it and if I'm just trying to get a message out about something. But I've, I've, I've ramped up Instagram a bit. Facebook eluded me very early on. I have a fan page that I'll occasionally post on, but that's about it. But to this day, people are like, Hey, I hit you up on Facebook. I'm like, I don't even know what that means because my personal Facebook got totally messed up in the setup and it's just there and it's dormant. It's just, it's a long story. So I'm not as engaged in Facebook, but Twitter and Instagram. Yes. And, uh, you know, I will engage with people. I used to engage with people a lot more on Twitter but i don't as much now anymore for a couple reasons first of all the world is so insanely polarized that it's it's just like you said i mean you can you can take the most innocent little comment and someone could turn around and be offended by it which makes me sick but it's the way we are today and i don't adhere to it i hate it but it is what it is but the other thing is being totally honest i just don't have the time like I I would get wrapped up in like spending an hour replying to people and getting into it. And then I'm like, I just like gave up an hour. I'm supposed to be working on something and producing something or reading something. So I generally, usually don't get in comment land on anything. Occasionally I'll pick one or two off and respond, but I usually don't, but it's not even because of like, you know, the, the small percentage of haters because the vast majority of people, and I'm very thankful for this, that listen to me or follow me are very positive and fans, and they get it and they're objective. And, you know, my position has always been like, you don't have to agree with me and I don't have to agree with you, but we both have the right to say how we feel and should feel comfortable doing so. So I think everyone's entitled to their opinion. And even if I don't agree with it, that's fine. And I like that debate and discussion where I have a problem is we just people just, you know, with pure hate and agendas and uh, people who creatively edit things and put them on YouTube to make it sound like you said did something you didn't. That That's where there's problems. But I certainly hope, Steve, that at this point enough people realize how the Internet is and how people are, that if somebody saw something or heard something, that before they reached a conclusion on it if there was somebody that I knew personally and they were really bothered by it that they would come and talk to me directly because they all know where to get me so I mean to answer your question um, I dabble in the comments sometimes where I'll feel like I might have an hour to kill waiting for a plane to take off and you know, something like that but by and large I really just post and I, and I am confident in knowing that 95% of the people who are following or listening are doing it because they enjoy what I do even if they don't agree with it all the time, because if, if they didn't, why would you still follow? Why would you listen? And then you've got the 3%, you know, the other 5% maybe of that are people that um, love what I call love to hate you. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Like, like they hate you. They hate everything. Maybe it's jealousy. Maybe it's bitterness. Maybe they don't agree with something you said. So they're going to reach these conclusions in this agenda and hate you, but they listen every friggin' day.
0: Exactly. Now, because I gotta ask-
1: when they when they email me, they give me categorically everything I've said, and I'm like, I don't know about you, but if I just if I really don't like someone, I don't I don't listen. I tune it out. I don't pay attention. <laughs> so that you know, I grew up being a big Howard Stern fan, and I remember Howard used to have a. a, a a uh, chat thing called the Stern Fan Network. And he disabled it because everyone on it was just killing them. And he's like, the thing is called Fan Network, and it's nothing but people talking shit. So, you know, I don't get, I really don't get too wrapped up in it. I learned a long time ago to let it roll off your back. Look, there's artists that have problems with me because of my positions on things. But we are in such a hypersensitive environment right now, and it makes me nuts, and I really try not to cave to it. I think it's important for everybody to be able to express an opinion freely.
0: Now, you've had a long career, and now will Trunk Nation be back on, or is that is that done?
1: Trunk Nation is the name of my six of my current radio shows.
0: No, what's the one on Access?
1: Oh, that was Trunk Fest. Trunk Fest. Is
0: that going to be back, or...
1: Sadly, no. I, I uh, that's I'm actually pretty annoyed about that. I did not that it's not on anymore, but the fact that that, in my opinion, the network completely buried that show for reasons unknown to this day. But I did uh, it, the show was not my idea. The, they hired me to do it. I thought it was a great idea, but all I did was host it and do all the things people who saw it saw me do in it. It was great in that it got me to music events and festivals I wouldn't normally go to put me in positions doing things, trying things I wouldn't normally do. So I really enjoyed doing it, I put a lot of work into it, but the network effectively completely buried it. The network was sold, and once Mark Cuban sold it, the company that came in and bought it uh, does not replay the show at all to this day. They do put it on their app, and it just frustrates me, not that it would make me any money for it to air, But just because me and the crew that worked on it put a lot into it a ton of travel and to just when you consider it's a network that 20 hours a day of their programming is 20 year old concert videos that are on dvd it blows my mind that they don't rotate in a show that they produced and created a little bit more or ever so that's my only issue with it and uh Unless another network reached out to me and wanted to do it, there, there's no there's no future for it. But if people want to see it, they did put them online, and I had a lot of fun doing it.
0: One final question. I'm not going to ask you who's been your favorite interview, because I've done close to 900 of these, and people say to me, who's your favorite interview? I'm like, well, I've interviewed, you know, from actors to, you know, so you can't. But who was a few interviews that... You just was at that holy shit moment. Like, for me, I'm a big Springsteen band fan. And a few weeks ago, I was talking, just like I'm talking to you, I was talking to Stevie Van Zandt. I love The Sopranos. And I was like, when you're sitting there, you're like, holy shit. And of course, as you said, you can't show it because you're the host. But who was who someone like the, oh my God, I'm talking to this person that have happened to you?
1: Um, Robert Plant, twice, in England, for TV again, for me, it always goes back to the 70s guys, the posters on the wall. Anytime I'm around any of the guys in Aerosmith, some of whom are friends now, as crazy as that is, it's still a holy shit moment. Uh, Gene and Paul won't talk to me and kiss. <laughs> Reference what we said earlier, that sensitivity and not liking things. Uh, Ace and Peter are friends, and as much as I'm close with those guys It's still you know, amazing to me To know them When I interviewed Neil Peart That was a huge thing And that was also for TV Because Neil just doesn't do interviews So guys like that um, Tony Iommi uh, Geezer Butler Having those guys Multiple interviews with them I remember Aerosmith hired me For the launch of their Guitar Hero game And we did a whole thing together At the Hard Rock When you have moments like that, when you have moments like where these guys who are your heroes request you or hire you to do things that are important for them. Joe Perry asking me to do his book launch with him. That's like, really, like Rush once hired me to do an interview with them for one of their records for a promotional thing. That's just like, holy shit stuff. So a lot of moments like that that absolutely come to mind you know the ACDC guys again it's it's really the 70s guys I don't mean that with any slight to the 80s guys but like I said the 80s guys are the same age as me we came up in the business together it's just different 70s guys are like wow this is crazy Billy Squire Billy Squire is a guy I don't talk about nearly enough he he was I was a huge fan I saw him with his first band open for Kiss called Piper and you know, I'm a huge Philly fan, even though he's been off the grid for a long time. Uh, you know, the times I've had to, interviewed him that were, were very special. So again, it's it's all that stuff rooted in when I was a kid.
0: That's cool. I want to thank you. Uh, you know, Rich Redmond set this up, and it's funny. My opening drum solo—that's Rich, and that's him saying, "Oh, nice." You know. Um, so people uh, go go to Eddie Trunk's website. It's EddieTrunk.com. Follow him on Twitter. Just. Check him out. You know, his website is a very, very good website. You know, I see a lot of websites, and some suck, but his is very, very good. Follow him on Twitter. Uh, Follow me on Twitter. It's at CooperTalk. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 860 episodes. Email me, cooper, at coopertalk.net. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.